Begin making your way back to your seats, that would be wonderful. And uh, we will uh, need to get ourselves over to Mark chapter 13. If you've got a Bible with you, whether digital or in print, uh, Mark 13 is where you need to be. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in front of you somewhere. And uh, we'd love for you to get there and to open up God's Word. Mark chapter 13, we're going to be really ambitious this morning and try to take this entire chapter. Uh, So I'll be honest with you, we got some work to do to make sure we get out of here by three uh, because we've got several verses that we got to get through. And some of you are thinking, I should have had that cupcake with blue frosting this morning before CE because this might be a long one. Uh, But regardless, we're going to try to get through uh, all 37 verses of Mark 13, um, and, and do it in such a way, Lord willing, that it makes sense. Uh, because that would be one of the goals that we have anytime we open the Word, is that it's understandable and you can, you can walk away encouraged and exhorted and edified and uh, that there's been profit from meeting together and sitting under God's Word. So, can we pray together for that? And ask the Lord to come and do that, because that is a work of the Holy Spirit. That is not something that I am capable of, but He is. And I want to invite Him to come and do that. Lord, we ask You, Lord, I plead with You to come and teach us this morning. And where it may be my words and voice that are heard, God, I pray for accuracy to Your Word. Lord, as we think about the return of Christ and what he says to his disciples when they ask him, hey, let us know what's going to happen before this event happens. God, these are things that are incredibly important for us here and now. God, we pray that you'd give our minds the ability to think well And to understand. And God, in all of this, as we look at your word, God, we pray that you would would give us joy as we think towards and await the day that Jesus comes back. And the clouds are spread like a scroll, and the trump sounds. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would hasten that day. We pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in Mark 13, Jesus answers a very specific question that his disciples ask him in regards to the end. And Mark 13 is a chapter about the end times. And there's a few things that we need to think through uh, before we get into the verses, um, because there are there are lots of there's there's lots of internet websites you can find about the end times. Uh, quite frankly, there's lots of movies about the end times from varying perspectives. Uh, in in many ways, our culture is obsessed um, with the end, uh, apocalyptic genre of movies and. All sorts of media uh, has exploded on the scene over the past uh, several years and decades. Uh, there have been predictions that have been made that have fallen flat. There's, there's the Mayan calendar prediction. There's Harold Camping. There was Y2K. There was all of these things that were supposed to be the end, and yet we're all still here. And one of the things, if you would have asked me... Um, when we had that interview and I came and candidated like, hey, do you plan on teaching on the end times in the first 18 months being here? Uh, I probably would have just said no. Um, and, and I would have also said no if you'd asked me about divorce. And yet Mark has both of those in there. And we, we've walked through those together. And I think it's one of the reasons why um, going through books of the Bible the way we are is, is important um, because it's far less dependent on what I think needs to be said as opposed to what the Lord has, has written. Um, but I found myself this week being, being convicted of that, that attitude, um, of just kind of shying away from it. Um, and, and I've shied away from it because 
there, there's a lot of craziness that surrounds this. There's a lot of craziness under the banner and umbrella of Christianity that surrounds this. And you can go and find a YouTube video or find some 700 Club broadcast. And there's, there's just unbiblical craziness. And I've, and I've wanted to just kind of stay out of that. And yet this week I found myself thinking, if, if we don't actually engage, uh, where, where perhaps is the biblical voice in that? Um, now I say that knowing that Sunday morning here I had to do this. So uh, I'm glad the Lord worked in my heart in that way. And, 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 and yet I was going to preach this sermon regardless. Um, but I found myself thinking, all right, if we, if we don't engage this biblically, uh, who, who does and who will? And, and where, where is the biblical instruction in regards to the end times going to come from? Because it's not from Brad Pitt in World War Z. Quite frankly, it's not from Nicolas Cage in the recent remake of the Left Behind movie and series. Uh, they, they wanted to make money. That's why they produced the movie. And yet, the scriptures do speak very clearly about the end and how we're to think about it, what we're to expect as the day draws near. Secondly, in, in, in just terms of some things that we have to understand, um, what, what I will say this morning, what I believe the scriptures say, is something that would be disagreed with by other really good godly Christians. And, and I, I feel like on the outside and, and, and on the forefront of this, I, I need to say that before you because the conviction biblically that Jesus is returning is a marked characteristic of believers. Believers are waiting for the Lord to come back. Now within that, there are believers who would disagree with one another about the timing of that. And about the events and the order of those events. And, and I, have, I have good friends that would disagree with me in regards to the order of the events that would take place before the Lord's return. And yet we agree that the Lord is returning. And so there, there, there's a degree of humility that I think we need to approach this with. I, I believe that what we will look at this morning does present a, a compelling set of evidence as to why what our church believes about the end times, I do believe is accurate. Um, but there, there are disagreements about this within the, the scope of evangelical Christianity. And so we can't necessarily look at those who, who may believe some differences about the tribulation or about the rapture and go, well, you're not, you're not saved. I don't think we can go there because all of us are eagerly awaiting the return of Christ, which is the defining characteristic in regards to the end times of believers Thirdly, and this is the last one, we, we can't demand, um, or I'll back up and say this, the end times is, is a place where Scripture interpreting Scripture is a principle of Bible interpretation that absolutely has to be implored and has to be set in motion. You can take isolated verses in regards to the end times and you can extrapolate and pull out of them all sorts of craziness. Well, you know, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Can't isolate one particular text and say, well, this means all of these things, and here's a date of when these things are going to happen, and and we've seen kind of how that's worked itself out. We also can't demand of the text that every text say everything every time. And so this morning in Mark 13, there is no mention of the rapture. We can't conclude, by the absence of any information on the rapture, that that's not true. Scripture has to interpret Scripture. And I think there's, there's reasons why the rapture is not mentioned, and there's biblical reasons why the rapture is mentioned elsewhere. But we have to be careful there, and we have to be very careful in regards to this particular topic uh, because of of perhaps all of the abuse that has been seen throughout the years. And so what we are given in Mark 13 is an overarching big idea that I think honestly can be summed up best by a question. And last week I had six questions for you. This morning I just have one. And, and it will be the question that, that just by and large 
uh, it summarizes and encompasses everything that Mark 13 gets after. And the question that we'll look at and, and really have and leave hanging over us is, are you ready? Because the point of Mark 13 is to provide instruction and commands to believers to be ready. Mark 13 does not tell us, command us to predict. It commands us to be ready. And Jesus is going to answer this question about when in such a way that he is making this big point. You guys need to be ready. And so let's get to the text. We'll go to verse 1. He has just observed the widow putting money in the offering. He has just commended her. 13 verse 1, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, they came out of the temple, they descended into the Kidron Valley, they then climbed up about 300 feet onto the Mount of Olives, which is where Jesus cursed the fig tree. They are now looking, more than likely, with an aerial view inside of the temple. And Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They want to know. Jesus, let us know. What, when, when are these stones going to get thrown down? These great stones that have stood the test of time. And we're talking hundreds, if not thousands of years. These stones have been there. And you're saying they're going to be turned and torn down. Teacher, tell us when... This will happen. What sign will take place? Now, as we get into this, we need to do a little bit of work in regards to the word sign. And we're going to be a little technical this morning. Hopefully in a way that's understandable for you. But we have to be a little technical as we approach the text. And, and one of the places that we need to be technical is in regards to the word sign. The word sign is used 77 times in the New Testament. 66 of those times it is used to either ask for or reference something miraculous. And so one of the definitions that can be given to the word sign is a miraculous event that reveals or authenticates. Think with me to the beginning of the book of Acts. You have signs and wonders being done at the hands of the apostles. Those were miraculous events that were authenticating the authority of the apostles. You have John in chapter 2 recording after Jesus turned the water into wine. This was his first sign. Well, the wedding of Cana, water into wine, was a miraculous event that revealed who Jesus was. It was the first of the seven signs that John records in his gospel in regards to miraculous events that identified or revealed the deity of Christ. 66 times in the New Testament, the word sign is used to reference a miraculous event. Eight times, the word sign is used to re reference what, what I would define as an ordinary event used to identify. So you have some important words there. You have revealing, you have authenticating, and you have identifying. Those eight identifying signs are very similar to the way we think of and have signs here in our nation. You have road signs, you have street signs, we have a church sign. The church sign may turn on and off all by itself, but there's nothing miraculous about that. That's just science, but that sign is identifying something. So here's a couple examples of an identifying sign. And this will be a sign unto you. You shall find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. There was nothing miraculous about a baby being wrapped in swaddling clothes and being lying in a manger. Now, there was all sorts of miracles surrounding that event. But babies being wrapped in swaddling clothes is what happened when babies were born. A baby being placed in a manger is what happens when you give birth to a baby in a barn. 
There's not necessarily any miracle associated with that, but for those shepherds, the command was go look for the baby in the the manger, in the trough, because that will identify for you the one we're singing about. It's an ordinary sign meant to identify. Three, if you were adding, the remaining three instances can go either way, depending on the context. They can go either way. They can either be miraculous, they could be ordinary. Why this is important is that I believe the disciples here are asking Jesus for a miraculous sign. They want to know what miraculous things are going to be taking place that will signify that the temple is to be destroyed. Now, I don't think it's wrong of them to ask for it. And it's, it's actually quite understandable. What have they done for the last three years? They have walked and lived and moved around the countryside watching him do miraculous things. The request for him to give them some type of miraculous indicator is just probably commonplace to what they have witnessed over the past three years. But Jesus' answer is profound and it matters greatly for us because he answers not giving them a list of miraculous things to watch for, but giving them a list of ordinary things to observe. And you see Jesus, here's one of the contextual places. You see Jesus answering with a list of the ordinary that are used to identify, not the miraculous that are used to reveal or to authenticate. And as we think through Mark 13, there's some ways that this passage is broken down. One of the ways that we need to just take a look at is all of the commands that Jesus gives his disciples in this chapter. The word imperative, it means command. It is imperative that you go and do this. It expresses the desire for you to go and do whatever that's been told of you. Here's all of the commands that Jesus gives. The ones in yellow are actually the same word in the original text. The best translation for the most literal translation for the words in yellow is actually the first one, the word see. It means to see and perceive as compared and contrasted with blindness. And it bears with it and brings with it the idea of readiness, which is why you have the next three being on guard. But don't be alarmed. Be on guard. Do not be anxious. Say whatever is given. Pray that it might not happen in winter. Do not believe false sightings. Be on guard. Learn the lesson from the fig tree. Be on guard. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. These are all of the commands that Jesus gives his disciples in Mark chapter 13 in regards to the end times. Again, I will just point out, there's no command to predict. There's a command to be on guard, and that's the overwhelming repetition that this chapter has. Be on guard. Our question this morning, are you ready? Are you on guard? The chapter is going to break down like this. And each one of these sections has the word, the command, be on guard in it. Except for the third one, the second coming. He does not reference on guard there. But it has life before the tribulation, verses 5 to 13. Life during the tribulation, 14 to 23. The second coming. And then some summary and some concluding thoughts. And so as I said earlier, this passage does not mention the rapture. We would understand from other passages in the scripture that the rapture would happen, the removal of believers from the earth being caught up in the sky with Jesus will happen during that little spot between life before the tribulation and life during the tribulation. But as we engage this chapter, there's, there's some ways that it's broken down that I think are helpful for us to see. In regards to life before the tribulation, this is the life you and I are living. Tribulation's not happened yet. This is life that is now as we know it. So these commands, these, these descriptions of what is going to be, what, what that life will be characterized, we need to take a special Point in understanding. 
And these few verses, 5 to 13, can even be broken down into some subcategories that there is a description of general world events and there are individual and personal events. And so look back at the text with me at verse 5. Let's think through first the world general events. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. They will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. These general world events that describe the birth pains that are beginning. These general world events have been happening for some 2,000 years. In some ways, seeing these things happen have led people to predict because they see, well, nations are going against war. Kingdoms are rising against kingdoms. This must be the end. And, and, and they're not wrong to observe what is happening generally in the world. I do think the prediction is a bit overstated. But in a general world perspective, the Lord gives very clear things that are going to happen. But he also says that the end is not yet. And as we observe these general world events, the command for us is to be on guard. It is to see. It is to perceive. It is, it is contrasted therein with blindness. The idea is that you, you have an ability to look at something to, to prepare you as opposed to somebody who's blinded and you've been commanded to look and observe at the world events and, and see so that you might be ready. And then he moves into individual, personal events. And in verse 9, again, that command to be on guard is restated. The word see in verse 5 is the exact same word in verse 9. Be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. To bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's a fairly grim outlook on life, but quite frankly, folks, it's honest. And I think one of the things that we need to appreciate about the scriptures is that there is honesty. Let's just look briefly at the commands or the verbs that describe what life before the tribulation will look like. These verbs are indicative verbs. They indicate what is going to happen. Many will come in his name. They will say, I am he. They will take the covenant name for God, I am, and apply it to themselves, and they will lead many astray. These are not what ifs. These are what will. And there's been plenty of examples of how that has happened. Wars and rumors of wars must take place Nation will rise against nation. There will be earthquakes. There will be famines. They will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten. You will stand before governors and kings. When you do, it is the Holy Spirit who speaks through you. But brother will deliver brother. Children will rise against parents. Children will put parents to death. You will be hated. The one who endures will be saved. Again, that question that has to just be asked, that is the overriding question for us this morning. Are you ready? The commands in Mark 13 is for us to be ready. The verbs that indicate what is going to happen do just that. They indicate what is going to happen. Are you ready? We can certainly cite examples of where some of these things 
have taken place. It's not the end, because the end hasn't happened yet, and so we can logically conclude that these things will continue to take place. And if you allow some other texts of scriptures to pull in at this point to the conversation, such as 2 Timothy chapter 3, evil is going to grow more and more. And what is understood or what had been understood as good will be labeled evil. What had perhaps been understood as evil will be labeled good. And evil and those who practice it will cheer one another on. They will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13. It will get worse as the day grows near. And some of you have the, the span of years in your life to think back what might have been 50, 60, 70 years ago, and you look at what is now and you go, oh my goodness, this is not good. And those are appropriate responses, appropriate observations. But look back in regards to the individual, the personal, in verse 9. Be on your guard. Be ready. They will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. Think of a couple examples here this week of this delivering that has taken place. Joyelle has had their entire bus fleet grounded by the Indiana State Police. Pennsylvania, sorry. I, I did that when I was practicing as well and I caught myself. Thank you. I'm in a different state. There was a high school football coach placed on administrative leave because he prayed at the 50-yard line. Now, in regards to the high school football coach, just briefly, the part of that story conservative news media outlets are not telling you is that a student in that school invited the local Satan temple to come and have prayer at the 50-yard line as well. Their reasoning was, well, if we're going to allow the Christians, we should allow the Satanists. If free speech and free exercise of religion is true, we should allow all of them. And the school said, no, we're not going to have anybody. That's not being reported by conservative news media. It's being reported by what you may see as more liberal, and it's being applauded and cheered by such outlets. But there's, there's a, a second side to that story. And the school said, we're not going to do... Christian or Satan on our 50-yard line. And then the teacher did disobey the direct order he was given, and he was fired or placed on paid administrative leave for doing so. But you think of, of some of these things being delivered over. You delivered over to councils. Stand before governors and kings. But in thinking through these examples, folks, do not miss, do not miss the purpose clause that is given In verse 9, you will be delivered over for my sake. And you'll be delivered over to bear witness. We may not have the perspective to see it. But there's something happening with Joel that the Lord is doing to glorify himself and to bear witness to the gospel that would not have happened otherwise otherwise, if their bus fleet had not been grounded. We can muse about what that may be. May, ben, the Herald Mail may not have ever posted that story about it. Joel may never have had an opportunity to stand before a judge and, and explain the, the, the programs that they do for these kids and, and what the Lord has done through that. They may not have ever had those opportunities. Don't miss the purpose clause in this deliverance. Being delivered over. It is for the Lord's sake and to bear witness. So we may bristle against our First Amendment rights being trampled on in our free exercising of of religion, but the Lord is using that to glorify himself and to declare the gospel to people that may not have heard or understood otherwise. There is something behind all of this 
that is at the hand, the sovereign hand of God, that he is orchestrating and allowing to happen to make his name great and to bear witness for and to the gospel. It pulls into mind what Joseph said to his brothers at the very end of Genesis, men, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So this delivering that will happen is done so ultimately because the Lord wants to make a witness for himself. And if we take the posture and position that believers should, such as, here I am, Lord, use me, These actually may be things that we are to celebrate. Because the gospel is being pushed forward. It's being proclaimed, perhaps, to places and in places that it never might have been. And he says just that much in verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver, That word deliver shows up three times in this set of verses. It's the same word Jesus used to describe what would happen to him by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes as he is delivered into the hands of lawless men, Mark 9 and Mark 10, and the second and third predictions of his passion. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you're to say. But say whatever is given in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and a father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. There's a raw honesty. The question that the disciples asked was, hey, what miraculous signs are going to alert us that the temple is going to be destroyed, the answer that Jesus gives is raw and it's honest and it, it, it summarizes the ordinary things that believers should expect and anticipate to happen. Folks, life's going to get tough. You're standing in society, it's going to, be, it's going to change. Your familial relationships are going to look different Your brother is going to deliver you over to death. You will see children delivering their parents over to death and vice versa. We have stories of that happening over in the Middle East in regards to ISIS and regards to Muslim and Christianity and the conversion of that where parents disown, if not put to death, children that have converted and repented and followed Christ. I mean, these are things that have happened and do continually still happen. There is a raw honesty to Jesus' description of life before the tribulation. The question is, are you ready? You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures will be saved. The one who is steadfast will be saved. That even brings to mind the parable of Jesus that he told about the soils. It was the rocky soil that received the word with joy, but then when trials and persecutions came, he said, now it's too much. I'm out. I don't want anything to do with it. The one who's willing to say, now Jesus is my Lord. He has my primary allegiance. They will endure. Well, our next section is life during the tribulation. Quite frankly, we're not going to spend a ton of time here because this is life for us as believers that we're not going to be here for. But Jesus says this, and it's recorded for And because there will be those that are here for and during the tribulation. And the verbs here actually change. They go from second person to third person. It signifies that there's now another audience that Jesus has in mind. 
When he was speaking in second person verbs, he was speaking to his disciples. He now speaks in third person verbs, which now bring into mind a different audience. You have Mark even recording Jesus saying, let the reader understand. There is something that is understood to come that is different than the verses that we had just looked at. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. There's that command again, I have told you all things beforehand. So, I mean, one of the questions just practically that you would ask uh, that I found myself just in conversation with a, a buddy of mine as we were dialoguing about this text this past week is um, if, if, if believers are removed, if the rapture does happen, well then who's there to witness? Who's there to share and spread the gospel? And, and, and one of the answers to that question is, well, there will be things that endure past the rapture. One of them being a copy of the scriptures, which is available on any smartphone. I've got dozens of them. If any of you find yourself here during the tribulation, break into my office, take all of them, and read them because they will explain to you the gospel. You have my permission to do so. There is coming a period of time which has a definite beginning and end to that will be filled with great tribulation. It is a period of time cut short by the Lord himself because of the incredible things that will happen during that period of time. But it is a period of time, a seven-year period of time, where there will be people who are saved. There will be people who are spreading and sharing the gospel. Jesus tells us that there are elect that will be saved during the tribulation. But there is also other things that will happen during that time. Notice with me just briefly in verse 22. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. That term, signs and wonders, is an incredibly important one for us to understand. It's one of the words that I just walked you through a few minutes ago that's, that's contextually defined. These are miraculous signs and wonders. The apostles, and I believe the apostles only, had legitimate signs and wonders that were used to authenticate the gospel message. And I believe signs and wonders done by the agency of God through men ended when the apostles died. I would further distinguish signs and wonders to be different than spiritual gifts. But there will come a day... That signs and wonders will be done by the hands of false Christs and false prophets to lead many astray. They will be so convincing that Jesus says, if it were possible, the elect would be led astray. The signs and wonders will be so convincing that those who are believers are going to find themselves wondering. Quite frankly, it's one of the dangers that I see in our current contemporary church culture because there are churches that are chasing signs and wonders. 
that language is being pushed throughout and it's being made very, very mainstream. I won't go as far to say that those clamoring for them are false prophets and false apostles and false Christ. I think they may be a bit uninformed. Folks, you and I need to honestly run from anyone or any resource or anything that is encouraging us to chase signs and wonders. That will be a characteristic of the Antichrist and of his agents, other false Christs and prophets that are coming. The command is to be on guard, to see The question before us is, are we ready? Then Jesus continues and he works through the second coming. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Just for a minute, think about the massive contrast that has just been explained. One of the clues as we read the scriptures uh, to contrasts is the word but. It's a contrasting conjunction. But. So you take everything that has just been said, but brother will deliver brother. But fathers will deliver over children. But children will deliver over fathers. But you're going to be beaten in synagogues. But wars and rumors of wars are going to take place. But there's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be all of these things that you can only conclude are bad And then he paints this massive contrast. But then the Son of Man is coming. He will come on clouds with great power and glory. Look at verse 27. And then he, that's Jesus, will send out the angels to gather his elect. That word gather there means to just collect together. See the personal pronouns that that express possession. Folks, Jesus is 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 talking about you and I, those who have faith in him, that that we're his. And he's gonna gather us to himself from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. See, I think Mark and the words of Christ push us forward to that day. That's where our focus should be. It's appropriate to observe culture. It's appropriate to see what is going on. It's appropriate to give cautionary words that, hey, we we are getting closer and closer to the Lord's return. And quite frankly, we're doing that one day at a time. It's, It's appropriate for those observations to be made, but the emphasis on his return, the emphasis is on his coming back, the emphasis is on his gathering of his elect, the emphasis is on him bringing together with him Those that had been raptured that will be forever with him and those that had been saved during the tribulation time and then for all of the church to be gathered together with the Lord. That's where the emphasis is on. That's what it would have given those disciples encouragement because really everything up to that point is bad news. But the good news is, hey men, I'm coming back. and I'm going to gather you. So be on guard. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So when also you see these things, and I I believe these things references verse 5 through 23, all of the things that he's given. When you see these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation, Jesus would be speaking about those believers living at the time of his return, will not pass away until all these things take place. Those things that he described will happen in a very short window of time. The tribulation being seven years long, the other things that precede, we have experienced and are experiencing some of them, but they will grow in their intensity They will grow and persecution will grow. There may be a day in America that we are imprisoned and beaten for our faith. These things will grow in their intensity. When you see these things and the generation alive to see them, they will know that these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. My word will stand. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. The great irony about all the predictions made by believers is that there's a verse that says nobody's going to know. Why doesn't the Son know? Because the Son at this point had laid aside His divine attributes, taking on flesh, becoming a man. The Son now knows. Jesus now knows when that day is going to be. But at this time, when he said these things, he had laid aside those divine attributes of all-knowing omniscience and was unaware of the exact day, but he now knows. And so verse 33, be on guard, be ready, for you do not know what the time will, when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, puts his servants in charge, each with his work, commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay alert, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, whether it's in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows, which is about 3 a.m., or in the morning, about 6 a.m., lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, that's us, stay Awake. Are you ready? Not just ready for... Not just ready in a saved, unsaved way. That's part of the readiness and we'll get there. But are you ready... For the things that Jesus said in verses 5... To 13, to be things that you experience. And if you're here this morning and, and, and perhaps you're just able to honestly say, no, I'm, I'm not, that's probably a good place to be. It's an honest place to be. Because none of us are going to like the idea of our children actually voting for us to die because we have faith in Christ. None of us like the idea of our siblings turning on us because we have a relationship with the Lord. But these are the very same things, the very things that Jesus said would take place. Are you ready? The command is to be ready. The command is to see, to perceive, to understand. It's to to be ready. It's to not be surprised. Quite frankly, I think surprise is the one reaction that we're not legitimately allowed to have as believers. Peter tells us that, brothers, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as if something strange were happening. We have enjoyed 300 plus years in our country of relative safety and by and large national recognition of Christianity that is quickly fading away. Are you ready? Then are you ready for the Lord's return? Are you ready for him to come back? Those of you that are ready, I believe the next event that we are waiting for is to be caught up in the sky with the Lord, where we will forever be with him. 1 Thessalonians 4. And then there will be a seven-year period of time in which 
Life during the tribulation, as Jesus described it, takes place. And then he comes back with all of those that had been taken before. And he comes and he gathers all of his elect. And those living at the end of the tribulation will experience a reality of where those that have faith in Christ will enter into the millennial kingdom with him and the rest of the redeemed. And those living at the end of the tribulation will be conquered. The lamb will come back and he will do business. Are you ready? For those of you that may not be ready, for those of you that may not have a relationship with the Lord, if if what I just said is true, there will be a day that you find millions of people have disappeared. And essentially at that point, you have seven years left. Seven years to decide whether or not you will repent of your sin and trust in Christ, or whether you won't and one day be conquered by him. Jesus writes, says this, Mark records this, so that we might be ready. Ready in regards to saved, unsaved, but probably for the majority of us in this room, ready in regards to what is coming. But in all of that, Don't miss the contrast. The Son of Man is coming. He's coming to reign. He's coming to gather. He's coming to, to get all of his children and to bring them and collect them to himself. And we will then rejoice collectively like we never have before. Don't miss the contrast. Don't miss the coming of the king. The bad news, quite frankly, is so that we might be aware. The good news, the contrast, is that we might hope. And that we might long for and look forward to a day that he is coming to reign. Where we might say glory to Jesus, the lamb who was slain. So this morning I want us to end there as we sing together. And we're going to sing to the king that is coming to reign. And this should be a song that we sing with exuberance with excitement, because He is coming. And He's coming to gather. And He's coming to gather His own. So would you stand and join the band? Let's lift our voices and sing these words together.